All right, so in this series, we're looking at the life of Jesus. We're looking at who Jesus was, and importantly, who Jesus was. Who was he in his time? Uh, and what I want to particularly focus in on is the point of crucifixion, and specifically when they put that sign above his head. Uh, and, you know, when you crucify a person, you always put a sign over their head to say to everyone whatever the crime was. Uh, this person is an insurrectionist or whatever the, the particular thing that was that they were, uh, were found guilty of. And so above Jesus' head, they put the sign saying, the king of the Jews. Uh, and now there was some protest. He only said he was the king of the Jews, but nevertheless, what we find on the sign is this uh, statement uh, the, or, or what the, uh, the accusation against Jesus was being the king of the Jews. And so I want to focus in on that. What does that mean? Uh, what, that's how they saw him. That's how the world that Jesus walked around in, how his contemporaries um, and, and certainly how the Romans saw him. You know, for whatever we see him as as our living saviour, um, that wasn't the case when he was alive. And so what was it about that statement? What was it about um, being the king of the Jews that was so controversial? I mean, quite literally, it got him crucified. Uh, and so what was it about that? What was the significance there? And so what I focused in on last week was the origins of Israel. Jesus was a Jew. First and foremost, he was uh, a Jew. He was a Jewish man um, born in uh, Galilee and who was um, descendant from Abraham, from, from David, from the tribe of Judah. And so ethnically, first and foremost, he, he was Jewish. Um, and so what we looked at last week then was who are these Jewish people? What was the origin of Israel? And what we focused in on was the Exodus uh, and, and then the establishment of this the, or the beginnings of the establishment of the nation of Israel. And so that's a really pivotal moment. Obviously, it's their foundation story. This is where they emerge from. And as we saw, it's sort of uh, the story itself is, is in sort of encapsulated in, in some sort of historical facts, but also some mythology. Um, and, and But the po important point was, is that this is their story. Uh, for Jewish people of Jesus' time, this is who they are. This is what gives them their identity. This is where they come from. And, and so that story is so significant for the Jewish people, because it was literally quite literally what identified them as being people. It's what gave them their significance and their uniqueness as a people group amongst the many nations. And so key to that story is the fact that God had chosen them. So Yahweh had selected them. Of all of the people on earth, he chose them particularly through Abraham, but he chose them as a people. And so the descendants of Abraham would then become the people of God uh, and they would be his selected or elected people um, to demonstrate to the world Yahweh, to show the world who Yahweh is. That was going to be the plan and he's going to do it through this particular people group. And so then within that, we find that they're an ethnic people. They're the ethnic group of Israel are descendants of Abraham. And so that's very important. We find later on Paul, um, whenever he's being challenged as to his authenticity as an apostle, he will talk about his descendancy. He'll talk about his ancestry as being a descendant of Abraham and specifically a descendant of Benjamin being one of the 12 tribes of, uh, of Israel. So ethnically, they are the elected people of God, but it, what particularly makes them a nation is that they're given land. They have a piece of land within uh, around sort of the edge of the Mediterranean, within what is now the Middle East, and in the same 
place as, as where modern day Israel is. And so the land is what made them a nation. You, you can't be a nation without land. You might be a people group, but to be a nation, to be able to have uh, the autonomy of being a nation and have your own laws and have your own rules and have your own kingdom, you need a place in which to exercise that. Otherwise, you are like they were back in Egypt, um, just simply foreigners or exiles or, or, or people uh, apart from or, or without a land. They're, they're homeless. And so the land is the absolutely essential part of their identity. The fact that you have land is what makes you a nation. And so for the people of God, having this land, this is what, what was so sacred for them, um, was to have this land and, uh, as it's what made them a nation, uh, as we've seen. So where we left off last week was finally the formation of a priesthood. Now, to be a nation, you need to have laws. You need to have uh, a constitution, which is what the Pentateuch is. The first five books of the Old Testament are, in fact, the constitution of this nation of Israel. And so within that are its laws. These are the laws of the nation. This is why the Pentateuch doesn't relate to a modern Christian. A 21st century Christian um, is not isn't meant to be looking at the Pentateuch for how to be a Christian. It's not relate. It's not relevant for us. It doesn't speak to us. It's the laws for a three thousand year old ethnic nation in a particular place in a particular time of the world. But for those people to whom it was given, these are their laws. This is what makes them a nation, and this is what sets them apart from the other nations. Or any nations have their own sets of laws and their own sets of values, grounded in their identity, grounded in their formation story. So for Israel, this was it. It's the Pentateuch is the story of their origins. It's the story of how they came to be, who they are, but also what it means to be the people of God. And so then within that, when you break laws, there are punishments that go along with that. And in this case, the punish the 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 laws themselves are the laws of God. And so to violate the laws of the nation is to violate God himself. And so this is at the same time sin. And so as a consequence of that, you need to make propitiation. You need to um, make an offering back to the God as a way of atoning for the sin that you have committed. And so once a year, every year, they would have a, a day of atonement, Yom Kippur, which would be their way of offering um, as a general uh, way of atonement for the sins of the nation. It's when they would place the sins of the nation onto an animal and then sacrifice that uh, as a way of making um, recompense with with Yahweh and to to restore that relationship that they have with him. And so that's a pretty familiar thing. Making sacrifices to gods is what all of the people groups of all of these time and in all of these cultures used to do. So that's all a very normal thing. And in order to facilitate that, you need a priesthood. And so the priesthood, again, like every other cult, every other religion of the time, you have a priesthood who are the mediators between the God and the people. And so in a typical ancient cult, the priests would um, would be appointed uh, for whatever period of time, and their job was to interpret what it was that the God wanted. So they would look for signs, they would look for any sort of clues they could find in the world around them as to signs of what the God might be saying. And so the questions you're asking the gods are, you know, why are you angry with us? What is it we've done wrong? What do you require from us to make reconciliation and so that's always the job of the priests and so it's no different in the uh in in the nation of israel you're going to have a priesthood now what's distinct about 
Israel's priesthood is that there is a one particular tribe. So of the 12 tribes, one of them is set aside for the purposes of functioning in this priesthood, and that, of course, is the Levites. And so that's different for reasons that we're going to see in a moment. But one of the other key differences of this new nation that's been established is that they don't have a human king, or at least that's not the intention. Um, this nation is to be a theocracy. Now, this is unusual because in all of the people groups around all of the city-states around them, they have kings, they have human kings. And the typical um, the, the typical picture of a king or the typical uh, way that a king functions in the ancient world is that a king is at the same time a god. Now, the great example that we see of this is the pharaoh. Uh, and, you know, so the, the pharaoh if if Israel historically was um, the exodus of, of Israel happened in about the middle of the 13th century BC, the pharaoh at that time was Ramses II. Uh, so he's a very famous, very one of the I think the longest serving, the longest living uh, pharaoh that, that ever existed, uh, and certainly one of the most famous, one of the most um, wealthiest, or one of the most powerful ones of of the time. The idea of the pharaoh is that he is not just a human king, but he's also a god. And so he's the middle point between the gods, between the spiritual or between the, um, sort of the heavenly realms and the earthly realms. He stands between. He's, he's, not, he's more than human. He's not quite a god, but he's certainly more than a human. And so his job is to be a, a go-between between the gods and uh, and the people, his subjects, the people that he's ruling over. And so that gives him, that's what gives him his authority, but it's also what gives him, I guess, his power to challenge him is to challenge a god and to challenge one who the gods are obviously supporting. And so that's a bat, that's something you don't want to mess with. This is someone very powerful that you don't want to mess around with because you don't want to mess with the gods because we know what the gods can do. The gods can be very vindictive and very violent when they want to be. So having a god, being a king and a god at the same time is a very useful thing to be because it means that you can basically do whatever you want because you're a god and who's going to argue against you? I'm sure many of our politicians would like to be able to make that claim for themselves and and have the, the, the attendant power. Nevertheless, he's the king, he's also the god, but he as a pharaoh, will also appoint priests. So anyone who's serving as a priest in the various cults around Egypt, and this is true for all of the other surrounding people groups, he would appoint the priests. Now, that's advantageous to him because he appoints the people who are going to best serve his interests. Um, of course, ostensibly, there's going to be a sense of um, uh, holiness and prestige around these particular people. But really what it boils down to is that these are political positions. You put people in these other places of power because they can then owe you for being in that position in the first place. The honor that comes along with being a priest is very great. You, you're a very powerful, influential person. And so to hold that position is, is something of great honor. And so therefore, if you're appointed in that position, then you're going to become, you're going to be very loyal to the person who gave you that position in the first place, especially when that same person can take that position away from you. And so you're going to be very careful about the way in which you, um, 
you you perform your duties as a priest. So the priesthood is really just well, the priests of all the different cults are really just the, effectively the servants of the king. Uh, you know, again, ostensibly they are there to intercede between that particular god and the people, but really they're just sort of there as political tools. Now this is true throughout the ancient world, right up until the time of Jesus. Any sort of priestly positions that have been appointed are, are really just positions that you're elected into or positions that you're given by virtue of your power and your wealth. And this is true for both the Greek world as well as for the Romans who were in power, obviously when Jesus is around. To become a priest, you get elected into that position. And so in order to be elected into the position, you have to be wealthy enough to be able to campaign and to be able to put your name forward as being the right person for the job. And so then having been elected into that role, you hold it for one year. Now, your job as a priest is to ensure the the running of the cult. So you want to make sure that uh, whatever is happening, whatever whatever that cult um, is, is required to do, whatever festivals or whatever sacrifices are happening there, you need to make sure that's happening. Of course, there's, you know, you intercede. Now, if it's a larger cult, if it's a much bigger um, sort of God within the city, you're going to have a priesthood that's going to, it's going to be there to help you run the show. Um, but again, it's, it's a position that you hold more as a political position. You're not there because you're particularly pious or you've got a particular fondness for this one certain God. You're there because, well, it's good on the resume. Uh, at the end of the day, it's the honor that comes along with having held that position. And so you would fund the temple, you would fund um, many of the any improvements to the temple or anything that needs to be done through the year. So you've got to be a wealthy person to do that. And you've also got to be a person who's well, well, person who doesn't have to work another job. You're not getting paid to do this. Uh, and so to be the priest then of a cult means to be able to devote yourself to that full time, which means that you're wealthy enough that other people are, are, are working your businesses or working your land for you. So again, it's only ever going to be held exclusively by powerful, wealthy, elite men really in most cases, is how this is going to look. So that's generally how a priesthood is going to look. Coming back to Israel, though, things are going to be very different because, number one, we don't have a king, right? God is our king. Yahweh is our king. And so this priesthood, they are not there by election from the people or because they're politically influential people. They're there literally by birth. If you're a priest, it's because you're from the tribe of Levi. You've come down through the, if you remember uh, Moses and Aaron, Aaron is from the tribe of Israel, uh, of Levi, as so is Moses, but Aaron then is given the priesthood. And so it's his descendants then who continue down the line and hold that place. And so you can only become a priest by virtue of that. Now, what that means is that you're not there because of wealth. You, you can't buy that position, um, but it still requires you to be a full-time minister. You're, now, the, the priesthood as well is going to be spread throughout the land. It's not just that you're the priest in the temple of Jerusalem, but there are Levites or there's priests through the entire land in, in, in all of the different states of Israel in order to facilitate the same cult, which is the cult of Yahweh. And so then the question is, how do they get funded? How, how do they get support they're not working they don't and as we if you remember they when the, the land was distributed uh, amongst the people they weren't given an inheritance they weren't given any land to um to to 
grow food or, or to support themselves. Uh, and so for them, they don't have any means of support. And what would happen? So what would happen then is that the people that they're serving would gather up ten percent of of their crop every year so remember this is an agrarian society you don't it's not a cash society it's an agrarian society which means that all of your wealth is tied up in the land which means that you only ever get an income once a year when you bring in the harvest so that harvest will come in and you keep for yourself whatever you've grown but you set aside 10 percent for the purposes of the priesthood again because the levites don't own land they can't produce food they're going to starve to death someone's going to look after them well the people who are uh, t- the people that are being served by that priesthood are going to then have the responsibility for looking after those priests. So that's where the idea of tithing emerges. I did a whole series on that last year, some of you might remember, um, where we go into that in a lot more depth. And so then this is how everything is set up. This is how we have a how this nation is going to function. And this is very different. It's very unique by comparison to uh, all of the other nations around in that the, in that they are theocracy, uh, the way the priesthood works. But it seems like for a while things are going pretty well. Um, it seems to be functioning okay. There's a lot of sort of um, disparate behavior happening through the book of Judges. Um, but, you know, the, they seem to be getting by as, as far as we can tell. Well, then we come to the story of Samuel, and I won't go through the whole Old Testament, but you remember the story of Samuel. He's, he's the most... Uh, sort of the highest priest of of the nation at the time, um, very uh, very powerful, very uh, influential, very holy man, and so you know he's he's doing fine. But then when it comes time that he, when it's looking like he's he, he's about to die, um, you know he's he's getting pretty old. His sons are taking over the priesthood. They're doing a lot of the work for him, and they're very corrupt. They're they're nothing like their old man. And so the people come up and they say, look, your sons are absolute scumbags. Um, we, we certainly don't want them to be ruling over us. They're just, they just get, are abusing us and will become even worse when you're gone. We want a king. We don't want to have this system anymore. We want a human king like all of the other nations around us. And so in part, what they're asking for is a human leader, somebody that they can sort of go and communicate with, you know, this having to talk to this Yahweh, um, you know, it's it's not not as easy maybe or whatever their, their argument was, but really they just want it to be like the other nations and have their own king. And so they request that. They want somebody who's going to lead their military, who's going to lead them into battles and, and basically just being a rally point for the nation. And so after a lot of to and fro they eventually come up to this with this compromise which says, okay, you're going to have a king, that's fine, but the king won't be like... Pharaoh, who you might remember, or from like the other kings that are around, this won't be a God king. That's not how this is going to work. He's not God and never will be because there is only one God. And for anyone to say that I'm God is blasphemy, it's idolatry, it's literally punishable by death in this land. So that's that's not something that's ever going to happen. So they say, that's fine, We're gonna, we want this king. And so they establish uh, a, a throne, a monarchy with a king who though not God, is, is meant to be a representative of that. And so what the priests are doing, this is effectively the way that they're meant to represent Yahweh in the same way the king is going to be a representative of Yahweh. And really what the ideal is, is that he's going to be the embodiment of Torah. Um, what 
the holy holy requirements of Torah and what the Pentateuch requires of its people, this is what the king is going to embody. He's going to lead the way. He's going to show them how to be the people of God and, and ultimately lead them into that. Um, he's going to be the great exemplar of the of, of what it means to be Israel, um, which is what a great leader should should be doing for any organization, for any community. It's that that's what he's eff- effectively supposed to be doing. And so we all know then the story goes on that the first king that they appoint is King Saul. Now Saul, if you remember, is from the tribe of Benjamin. And that becomes important for a different story when we come to the Apostle Paul. So one of Paul's sort of points of, of um, heritage is that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And as we're going to see later on, there's the two remaining tribes of Judah and Benjamin are really the two tribes that, that remain certainly by Jesus' time. And so the fact that Saul, I mean, if you think about Saul, who was, sorry, when I'm talking, sorry, Paul, who was also known as Saul, Saul, um, the, the persecutor, Saul was would have been named after um, his namesake, King Saul, because King Saul was the most famous person from the tribe of Benjamin. So anyway, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, but as we remember, um, he's not a very good king. He's very insecure. He's got a lot of issues going on, um, very disobedient to, you know, Samuel says, go this way. He goes the other way. He does the opposite to whatever he's been told. He doesn't work out very well. And so eventually God says, all right, we're going to get rid of this guy and we're going to employ, we're going to install another king, somebody who's more like me, somebody who is a man after my own heart, as the refrain continually goes. And so, of course, it's at this point that we meet King David. So in about 1010 BC, thereabouts, to say about, you know, sort of the turn of the millennium is when David now becomes the king. So David is now installed. David is from the tribe of Judah, and um, he goes on to become a, the most famous king. He becomes the sort of the benchmark for what a king should be. But importantly, what is set up with David is a line of descendancy. So all of the kings now are going to come from his sons. So the, all of the descendants of David are going to be the kings. And that's a pretty standard practice for any monarchy is that it's it's something you inherit. It's something that happens through birth. And so you don't just sort of have kings come in and out from different groups. In most places, what you get is a king that's established and then the family continues down that line. So David is going to establish not just a monarchy, but also a lineage that will continue down. And so again, a very important point of of fact, moving down to the person of Jesus, who himself was from the line of David. So David then becomes the king, and what what of his his real achievement is that he unifies the nation. You, you've got these different states, different tribes that have kind of spread out and sort of doing their own thing, and and this is what was the sort of refrain through the book of Judges is that everybody just went their own way, and so what David does is he comes along and says, "All right, we're going to make this a nation. We're going to establish." the nation of Israel, and we're going to basically just get everything unified. Um, We find uh, with David as well that there is expansion. He he expands the territories as well of his people. And really what he does is just establish the nation. He really focuses in on the geopolitical side of things, which is to create the nation. And so you sort of get the sort of um, the extent of the nation really occurs under David and really solidifies um, the the geographical boundaries of the nation, the, the political boundaries, uh, and then really sort of gets everybody on the same page as as it relates to 
their real king, God, Yahweh, in that he establishes also the cult, the cult of, of Yahweh. So I should just, a little side note here, when I say cult, I'm not talking and saying that Christianity is cult. I mean, some of you watching this might think Christianity is a cult, I don't know. But that's not what I'm saying sort of in the modern sense of the word. We think about a cult, we think about something like Scientology or you know some of these sort of bizarre groups that are out there. That's not what I mean. When I talk about cult, I'm thinking of talking about the Latin term cultus, which is you've got a God and then there is the practices around that, the formal practices that are related to that particular God. So it's not um, something that's sort of secretive done behind closed doors somewhere. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's actually the public um, practices of whatever that thing is. When I talk about the cult of Yahweh, uh, I'm talking about all of the requirements of that religion or of that cult so the temple and and the sacrifices and all of these different things so just by way of understanding what i mean by that term so anyway what david does is that he establishes this cult so he sets it up but he also establishes now jerusalem as the capital which is a little bit problematic for the tribes further north so remember there's there's the 11 tribes there's 12 if you include the levites but you've got these tribes that are much further north geographically quite distant from Jerusalem. Now, they have been doing their own thing, serving Yahweh, but in their own ways. They've been setting up their own um, sanctuaries and sacrifices and all these sorts of things. And so to have this unified and to have it unified, you know, one in the tribe of Judah, but also in Jerusalem, which now becomes the home of David, it's it causes some tension because, well, why not us, right? Why them and not us? Why Judah? Why David or Jerusalem and not somewhere up here. So there's always going to be that tension and always the just the, the the sheer logistical difficulties of being in the northern kingdoms and having to go back and forward to Jerusalem in order to 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 sort of fulfill the requirements of of the cult. So that's going to become a problem, especially later on, um, when we see how sort of this story ends up. Um, David nevertheless to say David manages to establish all of that and really creates this kingdom that we we, we soon we, that we come to find out. So then David's become the king. Um, he's established the nation and his next um, task, his next objective is to build a temple. I mean this is the one thing that they've been missing. You know God has literally been in a tent and you know the whole David's argument is, hey God, you're I'm in this I've built this great palace for myself. you know I've expended so much wealth on this fantastic house that I get to live in and you're literally living in a tent. That's not good. Right? That's, that's just not good enough. And he says, I want, I want to build you a temple. You know, I've got all the wealth, all of, everything is, is ready, the materials are ready. And God says, no, you're not going to be the guy for it. Too much blood on your hands. It's going to be your son that's going to do this. And so he says, all right, that's fine. And David passes on and there's a whole sort of succession issue that, that happens. But eventually Solomon gets the throne. He he's now becomes the, the, the next king of, of Israel. And so it's tasked to him to build the temple. So he's got all the materials there. He's got an established nation. He's got a people that are relatively unified. He's got a really good situation that he finds himself in. He hasn't had to do a lot of the building work in order to to get to where he is. And so he can really sort of take advantage of this great foundation that's been established for him and then to focus in on building the temple, which is exactly what he does. And so he builds the temple. You remember the story. It's beautiful, elaborate, one of the great temples of the time. Um, and at its 
coronation or at, at its inauguration, you have the Shekinah glory of God pouring down on it and God basically saying, yep, this is good, you know, endorsing it. And so what is now fully formalized, what you've got is the physical location now of God on earth. And remember, the thing with the temple is that the temple is the house of the God. It's the physical house of the God. It's where if you want to meet with that God, you go to the temple. So temples are absolutely central to any cult. If you don't have a temple, you don't have a God. That's It just doesn't exist. There's, there needs to be some sort of temple or if it's a very smaller cult, at least a shrine, some sort of physical marker that says here is where you can come to find this God. Now, you build the marker, you, you build whatever it is where that God dwells. So you go to where the God is and you build that temple. And so obviously the bigger the God, the more powerful the God is, the bigger the temple's going to be. And temples are one of the facts that we can still go and visit temples from the ancient world. It's one of the few uh, structures that are still left to visit in in these ancient cities is because they always had the best. The people would be living in literally tents and shacks and just little... Um, you know, basically sheds built from dodgy materials, whereas the gods always had the best. They had the best um, buildings, the best marble, all of the best goes into the temple. And so it's no different with Yahweh. And more than that, there's only one of him. So we don't have lots of temples for lots of gods. And so all of it gets put into this one temple. Now, that's all fairly sort of normal procedures, but there's probably one more thing that's different about this temple is, again, because this God has sort of is really our king. Yes, we have a human king, but the, our true king is God. Our human king is just his representative. He's not really God himself. He's more of sort of um, the first amongst the nation. The fact that you've still got this God who is who is ide- actually ideally the king the temple itself really functions as much a temple as it does a parliament house. It's really, it's the house, of, it's the seat of government. It's the seat of the king. Uh, and so the, it, it holds a lot of political power as well. You go, again, go into any ancient city and you can have lots of temples. They don't have political power. They have cultural power. They have, I guess, a sense of spiritual power in that whatever that God is, whoever that God is controls that aspect of your life. And so that temple represents that part of your life. This is different in that the political power is also held in this building as well. And so the priesthood, everything around it is, is as much the government as it is the spiritual life of the of the people group. So this is a very powerful symbol then of the people, and this is what becomes the powerful symbol right down to the story of Jesus. You know, when Jesus is going in and overturning tables in the temple, and they're saying, "Oh, he threatened to tear it down and rebuild it in three days." The temple is the focal point of what it means to be the people of God, and we'll carry we'll carry this story on. But it's such an essential piece of the story you've got the land which is this is we are a nation because we have land and now we have a parliament house we have a temple for the god that we serve and this is the centerpiece of our identity it's the centerpiece of our politics and all the things that go along with that so solomon builds the temple and this is where we find ourselves we have um you know this 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 king we've got the temple that's been built everything seems to be in place and solomon uh, from what we can gather is 
very smart guy, great wisdom, great great sort of leadership ability, but also very elaborate. Uh, what he's been left with is, is incredible wealth. And so he wants to build on his father's work. He's, you know, David had built this great geopolitical um, sort of nation. He wants to build its glory. He wants to establish it as a nation, which is a reflection of the great glorious God that we serve. Now, just I guess a little point to unpack here is, when, I, I can't remember when I first read the Old Testament. I was, you know, I just I just become a Christian. I read through the New Testament, and I got into the Old Testament. And I remember reading these stories, um, you know, throughout Samuel and into Kings. And you get this idea that Israel is this massive nation, this incredibly this incredible powerhouse of the Middle East, and it's just like this unstoppable force throughout that part of the world. But then you look at it on a map and you realize it's a postage stamp by comparison to the nations around it. And this is an important point we're going to keep working through the next couple of weeks is just how small and insignificant Israel actually is. Now, the way that they tell their own story, they are obviously the centerpiece of their story. Of course they are because they're telling it from their perspective. And they're telling it in a way that makes them superior. And when we read the stories of David, you know, he's he's leading these great armies and, and, and these great battles that are going on. The reality of those battles were they're probably just, they're more like sort of smaller skirmishes between two small armies. I mean, they just it just wasn't that big. Um, as we're going to see when we come into the times of empires, they really are just a postage stamp, not just geographically, but really just in the sense of their significance. They just, there's this tiny little place that they rule. But nevertheless, we find with Solomon, um, you know, he's this great, glorious king. He's doing this, sort of making this wonderful, um, great, elaborate uh, nation that, that he's established. Established, but he had his faults as well, and some pretty significant faults, as it turns out. Um, in order to build all of those great things that he's building, he needs workers. And so, what he did was to was to conscript his own people. You know, there's, he brings in plenty of slaves from surrounding areas, and that's a standard practice for all of the ancient world. I did a whole series on slavery at the end of last year. Slavery is a standard practice of all of these places in the ancient world. So this is nothing unusual. But he brings in a lot of his own workforce, conscripts them basically. Basically, they're, they're just very low-paid government labor to build all of these great building projects that he wants. He also expands trade. He's very he's all, he's really known for the great trade networks and, and that he, that he creates and so in doing that is enriching um, enriching the nation, but also very much enriching himself, becomes the wealthiest man, certainly of his nation, but probably one of the, lo- the wealthiest people within the region. And so doing great things, but at a great cost, it's a great cost to his people for them, for him to fulfill his dreams and these great ambitions that he has for himself. Um, but more than that, through all of this trading, through all of this negotiating, he's, he's sort of got a very sort of global perspective. And so he's doing a lot of dealing with uh, people from the nations around him. He's taken on a lot of wives and he's marrying people, marrying women from all around the different regions. And he's committing the one great sin that Rule number one, the, 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 the rules are pretty simple. You know, there's 10 simple rules that God sets out for his people. And rule number one is pretty clear. You'll have no gods before me. Like it's pretty obvious that this is the key one that you don't want to break. And yet that's the one that Solomon does indeed 
embrace. He goes and he embraces the gods of the foreign gods of his wives. And so within his own personal life, he's starting to worship along with the gods that his wives are bringing in. And naturally that's going to start to flow out to the people. You can't remember in the job of the king is to be an exemplar of the faith, an exemplar of this Yahweh cult. If you're worshiping other gods, you're doing the very thing, the very opposite of what you're supposed to be doing. That is going to have an influence on the people you're supposed to be leading and providing an example to. So that's a, that's a huge problem that we find. And so as a result of that, God says, all right, well, we're just not going to play this game anymore. Um, once you're dead, things are going to go really pear-shaped. This is just how it's going to be. And so that's exactly what happens. He dies, and so his son Rehoboam comes to the throne. Already there's a challenge for the succession. Um, there's, there's two sons that are vying for Jeroboam and Rehoboam are both vying for power. Rehoboam eventually becomes the king. And so now he, he's a young guy, maybe in his late teens, maybe early 20s. He's now established as the king. Now, the thing about Rehoboam is that he's a third generation now. He's, David was his grandfather. He's, he's been grow, growing up literally in the palace of David and now Solomon. Um, he's grown up in absolute luxury. He's grown up in wealth. He is what you would expect from somebody who's grown up with a silver spoon in his mouth the whole time. Um, you know, he's just a typical, well, I don't want to say typical, that would be totally unfair, but he's the worst product of, of what can happen when you, you have everything you want, when you've got more than you could ever dream of as a child. He's a spoiled brat effectively is, is how this goes down. And he's not a wise person. He hasn't got the wisdom of his father. He's, you know, his dad for, you know, all of his great achievements was a pretty terrible dad. I mean, having a thousand wives and many multiples of children, he's, he's kind of, he's, he's not the best old man <laughs> and probably wasn't around very much to help instill into him uh, any great virtue. Uh, he turns out to be an absolute terror. Well, anyway, the people from the northern tribes, remember the, they've already got some um, animosity or they've already got some a bit of a chip on their shoulder about the way that this whole thing has been established. They approach him and they say, hey, look, your dad was an absolute nightmare. You know, he did some great things, don't get me wrong, but he did it with our labor. So here's the thing. We're kind of over it, right? We don't want to be your slave laborers anymore. We'll serve you, but you've got to go easier on us. And so he says, all right, look, you guys go away. I'll go and seek some counsel and come back in a few days and we'll talk about it. So he goes and talks to the older counselors. So the counselors probably his old man and just wiser heads uh, in this, in, in the palace. And they say, yeah, listen to them, you know, just look, go easy on these guys and uh, they'll serve you forever. They'll be loyal to you. It's going to be great. Like you're going to have an, you're going to, you'll be established as the king. Uh, what your father and grandfather have achieved, you'll better carry on. It's going to work out really well for you. So just do what they say. He says, yeah, that's that's interesting. And I like your perspective, but let me go and ask my friends. So his other spoiled buddies and his other you know mates that he's growing up with, he says, what do you guys think? And they say, don't be stupid. So go back and say to these whinging peasants, Whatever my father did, if, if my father's the weight of my father was just a pinky, well, mine's going to be like a fist or, or something to that effect was the, you know, was the uh, analogy that he uses. And so he goes back and he gives them this advice. He says, all right, you know, you guys stop whinging uh, or else I'm going to make your life 10 times harder. And so in unison, all of these tribes say, all right, well, what share do we have in David? 
right? We we never wanted David as the king. That was that's we we didn't want it to be in Jerusalem. We were very happy doing our own thing up north. You guys have imposed this on us, and now you're making us work for you down in the south. You can all go and you know what. And so they that's it. They 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 separate. They part and. What we're left with now is is literally two nations. So what we have is a northern kingdom and then we have a southern kingdom. Now the southern kingdom is made up of Judah and Benjamin. So these are the two southern tribes who are geographically located in the south. And then up in the north, you have the 10 tribes, which are the remaining tribes. Um, And so they form, they effectively go back to the way things were, but now they become more unified around the the, sort of the 10 of them and they, they form their own kingdom. They, they, they're, they're their own nation. Now they establish a capital in Samaria and they establish their own version of the Yahweh cult and they're going to do their own thing. And so you've got to understand this picture and this is where we'll sort of finish off today because it's an important point to uh, to sort of get in mind is that what was already a tiny nation is now two independent nations. Okay, these aren't different states of the same place. It's not like two or three states in Australia or wherever you're from. This is two completely independent nations. Now, they all, they happen to share the same language. They happen to share the same origin story. Um, they, they, they all worship the same God, at least for now. And they all basically have the same practices, but they are two independent nations, independently governed, who are, well, as, we're gonna, as the story goes on, we won't follow that story really much more, but become enemies. And so we find throughout their story, Israel will side with foreigners against Judah, and Judah again will do that to Israel. And for the rest of their time, they're just a constant war with each other. So yeah, although they are brothers, they are effect, they are literally descended from the same ancestry, they're in entirely different nations together. And so this is where our story really sort of, well, it finishes today, but where it's really going to sort of expand out now next week as we start to look at the various empires that are going on around these two nations. The the key nation that we're going to keep focused on is the one in the south, which is the nation of, of Judah. But up in the north, you've also got this northern nation, which, uh, again, doing its own thing, um, doesn't have a, a, a monarchy that's from descended from more well, David because David is in the south so they re- they established their own monarchy which doesn't have uh, sort of a, an, an inherited um, descendancy uh, they, kings will sort of come from different groups and one king will oust the, the, the current king and he'll become king and, and so forth and so forth but again two completely different nations that are going to basically sort of go down their own stories now and um, well as we see next week where they end up is, is is really quite devastating but anyway we'll pick up that story next week um, but as for now have a great week and i will see you next week all the best <music>